So as we get started today, uh, Stefan, I thought it might be helpful for us to just give a little uh, framework in, and background of uh, Jung's Red Book. Uh, really, it, it started to develop at a time when Jung broke from Freud after several years of really coming up in his career and having a sort of crisis of identity in this kind of period of introversion, turning inward. Uh, diving into the unconscious space for several years and really dialoguing with all of these inner characters. Um, and I think he's sort of famously quoted as saying, to the superficial observer, the Red Book will appear like madness. And many people still think that. Did he experience some sort of psychotic break? Uh, was he in some sort of creative illness? You know, But many also point that the things that he experienced during this time uh, really laid the groundwork for his theory over the next several decades. Um, so what are your thoughts about the Red Book? What can you share with us today as we dive into this complex topic? Well, you call me, you call me at a good time. You call me a good time to ask about this because I'm currently uh, I'm hiring animators and stuff. I'm looking to actually try to do this as some sort of little mini series of some sort so I can actually art like show the story. Because I think um, I have a lot of extremely controversial opinions. You used to are probably going to be like, all right, this chat is over like 20 minutes in. You're like, I'm done. I don't want to hear any more from this guy because I look at the Red Book. I read through it. I try to be as critical as possible because Jung is like a pretty famous um, kind of cult energy around them and all this stuff. And I try to like just kind of see it with my own eyes and all this. So part of me um, sees it as a creative illness. Part of me actually sees it maybe as Jung was blessed with the the, the the flash of the muse, like literally the anima shows up, which is so reminiscent of the own ancient poetic muse. And she shows up and part of me wonders that um, Jung, what, what he did is he extracted his his elaborate theories out of this experience. Um, or you could say he took the, the kernels that turned into the flowering tree of his, his Jungian um, psychology and all that type of stuff, his analytical psychology. And that's a beautiful thing in many of its own ways. But I wonder, was, was he getting, you know, the first draft of like an epic, story like Dante's Inferno or an epic story of Paradise Lost and he was getting that creative shattering of his mind and he actually failed to stand up to that and fully realize it for what it could have been and I say that because his anima at one point turns around to him and says you know what what is happening to you is art what is happening to you is you're you're getting the introduction of the creative stuff now he did create something out of the red book experience nonetheless but um, i i kind of tune it and, and juggle it around this way and i look at it this way and so it's hard to tell exactly what is going on and maybe that kills kind of half the magic because what really seemed to happen is that young was sort of stuck in his head is the simplest way you could put it and he describes lots of very interesting traits that were building up to the creation of the red book for example he he was very much a sort of the cliche of the stiff rationalist scientist in some sense maybe rationalist is wrong but he he was very dismissive of the the woo stuff if you so wish and uh, he was very much trying to impress his friends like Freud, his friends like all the people who work with Freud, the psychoanalytic movement and all this stuff. And um, he saw, he, this is his words, he said fantasy was largely just a waste of time, according to him. And uh, that part of yourself that can fantasize, if you will, he saw that as a sort of dilly-dally nonsense spending time thing and all this type of stuff. And um, I think the Red Book was the 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 moment where his deep mind his fantasizing mind sees them by the shall we say uh cojones and grab them and said listen motherfucker you are this is real like you are getting you can't just you can't just uh you know study the mind you can't just uh study imagination you can't just study the unconscious and put like your little gloves on and go over here with your little spindles and like and get your clipboard and all this and do this stuff from a nice safe distance if you want to know what this is all about if you want to know what the human experience is all about i'm going to shove it into your reality and you're not going to be able to stop it you're basically going to experience madness if you want to understand it so um there's a lot of different ways that you could label it, but I think fundamentally actually looking at it like a, a breakdown of Jung's ego and the introduction of an outside force, which he would call the unconscious, and um, asserting its will upon him is um, 
probably the what I see happening the most. And what he was supposed to do in reaction to that is very interesting. Was he supposed to become an artist and change his path and become a visual artist? Was he supposed to become a, a psychologist like he did? Maybe that was his destiny as well. I don't really know. Um, who knows? It's hard to hard to tell. But I see it. I see what I see there is is what I sort of understand it at the moment. So uh, hopefully that lays a picture. Yeah, it does. I mean, the book really starts off with this tension between the spirit of the times versus the spirit of the depths. And as you're saying, this sort of association and identification with the spirit of the times, you know, of who I am in this moment, very ego-driven, very heroic consciousness uh, gets shattered, um, even with like the dream of the death of Siegfried um, and everything that follows within the Red Book of being pulled into the spirit of the depths, uh, that unconscious space, the timelessness that exists is that confrontation that forces him to face every aspect of himself that he thought was uh, foundational, grounded, um, strong. All, all of those illusions begin, begin to falter and break. And it's interesting that you bring up, you know, in this critical moment, was he meant then to go on to develop, you know, his psychology or to become an artist. And I think even in the tension that you see in memories, dreams, reflections, but before he went into college was like this struggle between should he follow this more like rational thinking function, you know, scientific uh, path, or should he follow something that was more of in line with his other personality, more artistic, more creative, more humanistic. And what's, what's interesting is that he eventually blended the two, I think, really, that that's kind of the beauty and the magic of Jung's work is that he kind of has a foot in each realm mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. can hold that but um he was on the outside of it right like even as he moved through medical school he was observing occult phenomena writing dissertations on it um and viewing it like a scientist using you viewing it from this detached point of view um is there anything in the red book that you feel really struck you the most any particular character or chapter or moment that you feel really culminated or um struck you the most as as powerful oh uh, it's a good question um i think the thing that gripped me the thing that took my interest the most was the concept of it um it was the concept of it predicting world war one I. I think that was the thing that kind of hit me the hardest about us the big story in it you know actually there's a lot of there's a lot more big stories in it that i might explore um, at some point in the future like actually being haunted by dead people like that's another possibility related to the war itself of course and um, there's the scene where he like obviously the sort of anima itself i, I young we, we we understand young's psychology um, as like the shadow is the big thing and the collective unconscious and then it's, it's interesting I've always found this interesting the anima is this sort of like it's 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 actually parlance or you could say synonymous with the idea of masculine energy and feminine energy Do you often hear people talk about what's like you know the universe is yin and yang masculine and feminine but when you read through the red book you, you don't really get that at all and um, it's not like Jung is necessarily interacting with the eternal feminine he's literally talking with like an entity that's communicating with him in a schizophrenic way that is literally his he calls it his soul it's literally like a voice in his head in some type of sense and it's a an operant force it's a living entity in some sense and um, and i could only see that as the muse like that's the same thing it's the same spirit showing up maybe the holy spirit is another version of that as well and uh, i think that was Jung's introduction into this and a lot of like the, the discussions that are going on between Jung and this anima are about um it's like Jung's secret destiny secret struggle like you are here to introduce the world to a new religion and it's like oh fuck really like what Jung's like oh no seriously i'm gonna be that like weirdo now starting religions and stuff and he's she's he's, he's, she's like yeah yeah it is yeah and it's gonna be and it's artistic as well and all these types of things and um so i find that very very compelling to see how young was coming across this thing he called the anima which later got distilled into a concept but actually i i almost think the concept sterilizes the the madness of what young was actually going through in some type of sense um so i've always liked that i've, I've always uh i've always liked that side of things and then of course the dead and the world war one stuff there's there's lots of kind of antidotes and stuff in the middle there's like some funny stuff with uh 
a guy who lives in the desert, an Egyptian monk and all this. And you can see um, Young wrestling with Christianity. And then there's a scene in the Madhouse where he meets Frederick Nietzsche. That's actually pretty eerie in some sense. Um, and I think a lot of that forms the themes that I see going on in there quite a lot. I actually see it as a, a man really struggling in an atheist age to, to understand what it means to be religious and struggling with Nietzsche himself is a pretty big deal. Um, and then you, the kind of sterilized science of, of his, his age as well and him trying to uh, like experience Christ, but also leave him behind and move forward into something new that's that's kind of built on top of it. So I don't know, does that really answer the question directly, but there's some things that flashed into my mind that stood out. No, absolutely. Um... You know, it's interesting because the Red Book has really only been out now maybe a little over 10 years at this point. And there's this the, the sort of secret um, manuscript for decades and decades after his death of, you know, only the family or close colleagues, people knew that this existed. And yet there was a sense that it would eventually probably get out. So the work of, of Sonu, Sonu Shambhasani, who really kind of worked with uh, Jung's family to put this together into a cohesive whole so that it could come out, um, allowed for you know, the public to engage with the Red Book. And I think it's then, uh, I think it's, it's people approach it in really different ways. Like when I read this book, it's like poetry. It is like creative, fantastical fiction. Um, it's, it's deeply personal diaries. And yet I still think people don't quite understand the red book and its complexities, you know. So to the average, you know, Jungian um, individual or someone who's interested in diving into the red book, how do you recommend they approach it? How should they view this? Well, I have to bully Jung a little bit first before we can get into that because it's not a well-written book. Um, I, I like it's it's very much got the cult quality. And I hate to be the guy who's just walking in and just like pissing all over the parade and all this stuff type of stuff. But like when I said that it feels like a first draft of something that could have been exceptional, I, I'm actually like I'm being serious. Like I think that um, when I read through it, it looks like uh, like maybe we could even talk about a bit of the, the science of the hemispheres. But it there's these sections where he has these extended long um, rants of, of just like it's con almost conceptual rants. And that's him processing the experiences. And then he has these flashes of literal, it's like fiction that's coming out of him, you know, like the scene where he goes into the, um, he goes into the, the castle and then there's the, 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 um, the, the, the librarian's daughter, you know, and he's like, he's going to have his way with the librarian's daughter and all this. And it's like a little fairy tale. You're, you're, you're in the fairy tale. And when I'm reading through that, my mind is like viscerally, uh, I can see it, you know, I can imagine it. But then there's this big, long wad of, explainy text afterwards and i can read through that but it's just like it's very it's conceptually dense it's slow it's hard to follow these type of things and it's worse than maybe for example his his other books because um at least the other books are like attempting to explain with that type of rhetoric whereas this is it's it's almost like a confessional in some type of sense if you know what i mean and it's it's hard to follow in that type of way so in my experience when people read it they just they just can't get like they're like well i don't even know what's going on here there's no plot I, I, should i be reading like this is like a technical novel should i Reading, reading this is like a work of fiction or something like this and part of me thinks that if he actually extended out the dream sequences and could kind of chain them together he would have had a very compelling story and maybe even just distilled out the artistic scenes he could have done that as like painting or something like that maybe like a William Blake type situation maybe in that type of regard maybe he could have purified the speeches or something like that this is sort of what the rest of his his life's work was the purification of that stuff into an intellectual capacity but um, I find that yeah when most people read it they read Really, really struggle with the slog of getting to the intellectual stuff so if i was to recommend people to try anything and um, i actually recommend them sit down with a piece of paper try to go for the pieces that paint pictures there's there's sections that you can very clearly tell are narrative and actually get them to maybe draw that stuff out to help their imagination click online and you'll start to put together a quite a a long plot like for example the, at the start of it a, quite a lot of it is about him wrestling with the anima him wrestling with what this means the anima talking to him taking him to a desert and you get a plot out of that and then 
it's it, there's this sort of sequence of ideas then she left me alone for the night and the next night i was taken into the underworld and then boom he's going and he's going into the underworld again and he's doing something in the underworld and he explains afterwards what that is but i think the explaining stuff can be left till the end and you string together this thing where he's like all right he's sleeping the animal brings him to the underworld and then he does something with the desert he plants a couple of seeds and then he goes back to sleep and then he goes back down into the underworld and he builds up this underworld more you could think of this like he's He's, he's adding body to his own conscious or something like this. And then he goes deeper and eventually he starts to show up at like little castles. He goes to these, these, these Egyptian monk deserts. He meets this guy called the red one. He starts to go into meaning Nietzsche trapped in a mental asylum. All these, the story begins to evolve in some type of sense. And then eventually he's like talking to Satan and God. And then you're like, all right, there you go. We've probably reached the end point at this point. And then the divine child comes and you have a sort of arc of a plot pulled out of it. But the thing is, is that you kind of have to do the work because it's not a finished product. It's something that you kind of need to extrapolate out yourself. And then I think when you go back over it and then you read over his rants, you actually get an awful lot more of what he's talking about. Because you see, it's almost like there was a dream story he was going through and the rants were like his ego trying to, pull itself together but like what the fuck is happening to me here like why am i hearing all this type of stuff there so um yeah if i was to say anything if i was to recommend how people could dive into it a bit more i'd recommend that i recommend the old school grab a piece of paper and like a little baby draw pictures as you're reading it through to try and make sense of it i mentioned a little while ago in our conversation that you know Kind of early on, I think we start to see the breakdown of the heroic consciousness through the Red Book and uh, Young's sort of confrontation with having to reckon with his own, um, the sort of like destruction of his own foundational um, life aspects that had really defined him up to this point. And as we move both into the world war, but also into his own confrontations, you start to see these themes of the hero um, and his demise and really having to face that as it goes into the underworld. And so this archetype of the hero that I think many individuals just um, identify and work with in early life in general is expressed through Jung's Red Book as well. Um, so any thoughts on one, the sort of like archetypal identification with the hero, the, the naivety that might come with it and the, that arc of, of ultimately having to transcend it? This is this is a good question. I think actually this is a very very big idea because um, fundamentally Jung is I know he's Swiss but he's fundamentally German in his spirit like he's a Protestant minister you know, and um, the Siegfried thing is obviously the Germanic hero and that's obviously also a reference to Franz Ferdinand getting shot like that's that's another uh, aspect of that as well, um, and all of this stuff stacks on top of each other in a very profound way like it's you know it's symbolic and it's it's resonance. Um, so I think what Jung would often say is that the, the whole idea of the individuation thing is that really it clicks into gear in an intellectual cultural sense when you're about 40 years old, you call that maturity. And the first half of your life is that you have to charge up the hill and you have to assert yourself and you have to get, you have to build your castle and you have to, you know, take on the world and build your stuff and all this type of stuff. But then, uh, like, you know, your testosterone is going to drop. And then you're going to hit 40 and then you're like, you're going to, everything's going to be said and done. And you're going to have to kind of let go of that a little bit and prepare for the evening time of your life and all this. What are, what are you going to do in that situation? And I think um, going alongside that as well is this very, very interesting problem with the, the Germans at that time where he, I think he was seeing the world changing massively and very quickly and very rapidly. And Nietzsche talked about this as well. And there was this sense that, they like the whole idea and and I, I say germans almost as if uh, it's like synonymous for european because the germans were basically the anchor of european civilization like they were the center of it the german christians were the people who took over rome and they established west in in all its essence as germanic and the end of the 19th century was essentially the implosion of the west it was the 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 the, the god dying situation oswald spenger saying the western civilization is over and 
it was like uh, there's a lot of very very interesting questions that are happening there. Like what do you what do you do from that position? Do you you let go of your past and do you try to mature into like a new way of going? You've lost the sort of vitality of your youth when you were like Germans running around the forests. Now you're like hyper civilized, maybe hyper sterilized groups of people who need to kind of transition into the sort of cultural aspect of things. And I think he was obviously wrestling with that quite a lot. The wars are the backdrop for how that was playing out. And I think it, um, I think it just has a very resonant uh, harmony with what you often might have to think about on a, on a personal level. Like you do see yourself as the champion, the ego, you need to push forward in your life. But then at some point it, it clicks into gear and you need to start thinking maybe differently, maybe not less so in from the position of a radical action and more so from the position of, you could say, mature choices and, and developing out uh, patiently and, and the, things like this. And as I said, the sunset of your life and as Jung would often say, developing a kind of content to your soul. I can talk on this for an extended period of time in many different directions so maybe i'll let you kind of guide me where you'd like me to go with it yeah you're you're sort of outlining you know how a lot of young psychology works where that that first half of life the kind of rising of the sun and and it and it at its peak is really about that development of ego consciousness but at a certain point we uh we recognize the natural fall towards the second half of life and that's a struggle for many individuals um but I think what's interesting about Jung's experience, especially, is that not only is he maybe moving into a sort of midlife period, but he's also experiencing the the kind of symbolic death of other aspects of his life, especially with the break from Freud, who was in some ways that that uh, projected father figure for him. You know, the father and son relationship also deteriorates in this period, and there's so much wounding that we really see him processing I think in the red book not just from some of those emotional pains but the cultural dynamics as well you brought up the the kind of castle in the forest story which I thought was such an interesting dynamic between the masculine and the feminine um and in the story of course the daughter of, of the like the philosopher librarian just needs to be acknowledged that's kind of like the healing antidote is just for her acknowledgement um and for for Jung to say in that story that he recognized her and saw her was like the liberation. And she gives her regards from Salome, you know, the anima figure. So we see him like grappling not only with these really difficult experiences in his own personal life, but I think also these cultural dynamics of the masculine and the feminine, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, um, lots of cultural dynamics with the red one, you know, they, they start talking about Christianity and Judaism, um, and of course, the, the cultural tension between the Germans and the Jews. So there's all of these really collective and also personal themes that Jung is struggling with. And, and that I think is part of the, the death of the hero as well is to transcend just that personal narrative and, and kind of merge into the collective in some way without fully losing yourself. And do you think that these stories in the Red Book really um, express that for Jung? I wonder if that's your take as well. Oh, well, yes, he's, he's definitely wrestling with that. Like, I think what, what one of the most interesting things to look at, like Nietzsche actually adds so much context to this because Nietzsche, for example, was like the, the, the most anti-German man you could imagine. And um, even though he was a German, he was a Prussian. Like, so he was the most Prussian German type you could imagine as well at the same time. Big hairy beard and spoken German. Uh, like loved war all these type of things but he hated german nationalism he like he liked jews he he was he was uh, he hated the anti-semites and all this type of stuff and 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 nietzsche sort of represents you could say the 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 intellectual exception and the way you could think about this back in the day is like nowadays you have the sort of conservative establishment culture and if you want to be like an intellectual you want to stand out of the the um you would like get into the punk rock movement or the the kind of left-wing movement or something like that and maybe nowadays it's there's the the left-wing established culture and everybody's going to the right wing or something like this but it's like you're, you're going to the, the niche and all this and so the jews are always in a position of being like the the outsiders the niche and nietzsche would would go there like he they would be the people who would do the unthinkable which is say christianity is wrong you know like stuff like this and nietzsche would be on, on side with that 
And uh, he would look back at the Germans and they would have this kind of like bumpkin Christianity. They guzzle beer and they'd uh, eat, they'd they'd, like, you know, they'd be nationalists who guzzle beer and talk about Christianity and hate the Jews. And it's like, all right, that's not a culture. That's just a load of people who are being annoying. Like they're they're just dolts as far as Nietzsche could see it. And um, Jung was like super intellectual in some sense. He was trying to break free from that as well. He wanted to be the exception. And from stiff Victorian Christian German society, you weren't going to get... You know, you weren't going to get like a sexual liberation or anything like this. Um, and so Freud, a Jew, comes along and comes up with this like radical revolutionary perspective on psychology and the, our motivations and, and all these type of things. And it's super interesting and profound. And so Jung gets involved with this. And so this is him sort of breaking out of this. But of course, the psychoanalysis movement was really like for that reason being an exception. It was, it was sort of anti-Christian in some senses. Like it was breaking against that. It was against the establishment. It was against the West and these type of things. Like people have accused it of being like a subversism on all this type of stuff. Um, and so on, on the one hand, his mentor Freud was bringing him this direction and consolidating his ego. And then and Nietzsche was sort of there as well, you know, like that was all, you know, break, break to the new thing. But then Jung was like, and he loved Christianity. He loved being German. He loved, he had all these parts of himself. Like he was deeply identified with being European, if you will. So he was sort of stuck, like I probably, like he, like Siegfried is a Wagner thing. At one scene after the librarian breaks down, he watches a Wagner opera, these type of things. So Jung, Jung was like super connected with that part of himself as well. And I can see throughout it, like there's actually this massive war where his identity is getting pulled apart from all these different things, where he's trying to decide, like, do I embrace Christ? Do I reject Christ? Um, and then, for example, the this thing with the red one where he's talking about how the Jews rejected Christ and it left them empty or something like this. He's fighting with all these forces and his mind is trying to deeply, deeply process this. And then, you know, um, um, Philemon shows up and he's a pagan, a pagan magician of all things. And he's, he's, he's really trying to wrestle with all these various identities. And I guess you could say find his center in the middle of it all. That's really what he's trying to do. So he's, he's actually like opening himself up to the blunt force of the quote unquote unconscious and then letting all these forces kind of like bully him around and him to, to draw his lines in the sand, like him to sort of say, um, you know, I'm not Freud, I'm not Nietzsche, I'm not like completely rejecting Christ and going uh, like antichrist or something like that. Um, but maybe I'm not also like fully Christian either. And maybe I'm not also fully Western or something like this. I'm, I'm me, maybe is what Jung was trying to say in the end. So that's that's sort of what I see. Now, that's an eclective sense. In a more personal sense, um, uh, what I find interesting is a lot of this stuff was mirrored in the choices he was making at the time. The precisely what I'm sort of talking about. Like he broke away from psychoanalysis as a whole. And that was actually part of that sort of thing of saying um you know like the kind of the, the 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 critique of the jews you could say is that the 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 like freud and all that is that they're very reductionist they, they would they would not be able to see the idealism of something delusional like christ like that's just sounds silly to them you know you hear you hear them talk about christ like sarah silverman is like oh he's he was a criminal but um, but they they would they would see things very reductive, and Nietzsche liked this about them. They were very very realistic in some sense, and uh, maybe Jung was dismissing that and saying there's more to life than just like we're not just driven by our sexual passions. We're not just robots. We're not just machines. We're, there is something ideal about us. There is something beautiful, and that's sort of the Christianity sleep is seeping back in again in this type of regard. And maybe that's um less so like a, a well a part of a collective choice, but also like a personal choice. Like I'm not just my my, I'm not just going to be reduced to a student of Freud. I'm not going to be reduced to these simple ways of seeing things that reduces all of human experience. I stand for something else. I stand for idealism. I stand for something that's exceptional. And um, I think that's where he sort of, you could say, individuated himself. You mentioned earlier in the talk that in some sense, you, you can't just study the unconscious objectively. You need to, in some sense, experience it subjectively to like truly understand it. And would you say that Jung was uh, conscious of this, that he was intentionally trying to experience the unconscious as subjectively as possible in order to study it scientifically? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I definitely don't think he was he was consciously trying that. I think, um, actually, the thing I would say is um, less so than me making that statement of like, this is how it works with the unconscious, because I, I don't really know, I'm just a boil. But um, what I see with uh, Jung is he coming from this position as as Alyssa was saying like he was very much in his thinking function he is his ego was dominated by procedural 
um, left hemispheric. I don't know how much you guys follow about the hemisphere stuff, but like it's very much like gather up the mechanical uh, filing cabinets of data and you know all, what what the mind is is like a set of data points that we can reduce down into the cons like very simple easy to manage concepts like wanting to fuck and being oppressed by society like these type of things it's very very simplistic in its renditions and then um, your approach towards it like if you're going to do science with something like the mind you you put on these gloves put on this lab coat and you show up and you like poke it from a distance and you like look and act all big brained and you write down on your clipboard and you you sit down like what young would do he'd sit down with schizophrenics and he would talk to them and he would keep this sort of detached distance from they're the crazy person and i'm just looking at their diseased mind and trying to figure out the patterns and all this type of stuff and there's this there's this um you know there's this block between him and the actual experience he's, he's looking at it from a distance and out of this you deduce a sort of framework rational conception which we call you know the various parts of the mind one of them might be the soul and all of this is you know a theory in a book and Jung was planning Jung wanted he wanted to write a book like Thus Spoke Zarathustra he wanted to write something like Faust he wanted to write something that he could show his friends and they'd all be like wow what a brilliant genius he's come up with the new vision for the new future and all this stuff and so Jung was trying to do this from this sort of rational distance without this sort of experience and what basically the unconscious said, if you wish, or his mind, maybe his right hemisphere, maybe his mind, maybe his soul, whatever it is, the unconscious, the, the other part that, that experiences life with, with a felt experience, saw him doing this for decades, probably. I was sitting there on his shoulder being like, for fuck's sake, Carl, you're such a, you're such a dork, like actually just dive in. It's like, he's like a, a journalist going to a, a rock concert and like writing about the experience. And his unconscious basically just slaps him and says, bro, take the LSD and go fucking into the mosh pit. Like, please stop. You're so fucking annoying. You're such a prude. Go, 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 go. And they, she, she basically shoves it down his throat. He has the experience and he has, he's forced to experience what his mind can produce when he's not in control. And he's forced to discover that his mind can give him knowledge that he can, like he, he's forced to discover that in order to gain knowledge, you sitting around just data processing things is not actually and frameworking stuff is not actually going to create something for you it's just going to be you rearranging the world that's already there but out of you can explode this new fertile source of creative energy that will form into the foundations for something new if you so wish and that's sort of what his mind that's what i think his mind did to him anyway his anima his soul his unconscious literally comes up and says like you know stuff like you were abstracting me into an object and he repents he submits he says i'm sorry he says i'm sorry for turning you into an object that was arrogant that was a mistake and she's like yes it was a bad job bro now we're going to bring you down into the desert you know what the desert is this is the this is your heart this is your insides this is what your the inside of your 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 soul looks like this is where you've been keeping me bro it's it's like dead in here there's nothing going on you haven't watered in here at all this type of thing and so it's 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 him coming in contact with you could say the source of creativity the source of the imagination in some sense and this is why i i run with that sort of create a great work theme and um, Part of him probably wanted to create that prestigious work like Nietzsche, like Dante, like Goethe, and create this big visionary piece of work. And he was maybe pressuring himself to do this because he was coming up to 40. So that was the period of his life where he, he has to show up with the big genius piece of work because he's kind of running out of time. And um, he was stuck in a left hemispheric thinking function, trying to joggle around all these concepts. And you're never going to get anywhere doing that. It's just, it's like, it's literally like what writer's block looked like in some sense. And um, I've worked with people with that. And what happens then is his mind says, all right, I'll give you what you want, but it's going to hurt. And she explodes out the creative imagination and makes him face all these ugly things about himself and all these emotions come up and it's, it destroys him. It completely breaks down his whole frame and way of seeing things, but it's fundamentally the, the spark of creativity is awoken inside of him. And he never has a problem with being creative for the rest of his life. Like he's, he's pretty much sorted in that industry. Once he's got, uh, once he's got that stuff sorted, it's like someone who takes a really big dose of acid and suddenly like, you know, the next year later, it's like, bro, I need to kind of stop my imagination because I'm currently seeing things as opposed to uh, I'm lacking ideas. I'm lacking inspiration, this type of stuff. So would you say that the, the red book uh, an experience like the red book 
part of his life is something that creative people should inspire to or that should aspire Good question to, or thinkers should aspire to a red book moment to really become creative they should shatter themselves they should dive into this sort of almost self-destructive unconscious is that something to it's a good question or is it dangerous oh it's definitely dangerous bro yeah like i hate to say it to you lads but uh yeah it's it's probably the thing you need to do if you want to get up there to the top but it's uh probably it could break you look at nietzsche like nietzsche was no joke man do you, do you want your sister to be wiping your ass for the last 10 years of your life after you say that you're going to defeat god be careful bro like it's a big deal um what happened with, with Nietzsche is fascinating because Nietzsche was uh, like viscerally creative, like he had a very powerful soul. And um, he had this experience where he was just walking through the mountains one day and he had this flash, like visual flash of uh, this like entity that was 6,000 years above the sky, all this type of stuff. And he went back and he wrote Zarathustra in 10 days. And his life was like awfully tragic in some ways and awfully chad in others. Like he was, he was, he was broken health wise and he'd force himself, he'd work himself up into a frenzy, go hiking, build up his strength. And then during these periods of strength, he would like write frenziedly from all the thoughts that he was harboring while he was sick and all this stuff would just pour out of him. And so Zarathustra burst out of him at one point as this like very fertile, almost well put together, constituated um, sort of story, if you will. And that's an example of a man who struggled an immense amount. And out of that came this con kind of consolidation of a, a great work, if you will. And with something like Jung, it's it's sort of similar in some sense. Like he, as I said, literally wanted something because you always you, you want the Zarathustra. You don't want to go through the experience Nietzsche had to go through. And Jung was sort of in a similar position where he wanted to create something great, but he, you know, he he had to be broken by it. And in order for the, the muse to choose him, he almost had to like have himself broken open so that he'd become a recipient for this type of energy. And so um, the Red Book was his way of experiencing that. Now, I'm not sure if that everybody needs to go through a schizophrenic break where you're like, you know, women show up in your, your room and start talking to you, like this type of thing. I'm not sure if that's necessarily what you need. And um, I'm sure you could induce this if you wanted to, um, or maybe it would happen to you if you're so chosen. And um, for example, maybe psychedelics can encourage that job along. I certainly had experiences where I took a, a load of psychedelics and it switched on that part of my mind. I took them once, by the way. I didn't do them for an extended period of time. I actually think that's dangerous, but I took them a really strong dose once and it erupted that creative part of my mind and switched it on for about six months, but then it faded away. Um, and I was, I, I, I kind of turned it on at that point. So I knew that it existed. It kind of died in me when I was in my teens, you know, because school is like very procedural. And um, I realized that it was real then after that psychedelic trip. And so I tried to figure out ways that I could switch that side of myself on more permanently. And I actually came across Young and dream reading. And my way of doing that actually was the thing that worked for me and it switched that on and i've never had problems with having ideas or creativity since then like i've just always been churning visual like i have it's weird i have like a visual flame on in my head all the time like it's just there i built it into me and i see that in young i see that 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 actually gave birth to itself in young the part of your mind that fantasizes you know it, it gave birth to itself in young during the red book and i think it sort of stayed with him for his life um, and to some extent and as an artist i think you that's what that's really what you're trying to do it's like the olympian flame you're trying to switch on you're trying to switch on that creative part and nietzsche had that very strong and it, it burst out into incredible epochs of power at times and uh, all artists you're trying to find that in some way and there's lots of different ways you can get to that path you know you don't need you don't need a psychosis like you know i welcome you to try it if you wish like it's pretty extreme but i don't think i don't think you need it i did it with dream reading I took a large dose of psychedelics and I did it with dream reading and it, it worked for me. Now, maybe I'm not the greatest artist ever, so maybe that's not the best example, but, uh, but that, that worked for me. There's plenty of artists as well who didn't need stuff like this. They just had this part of themselves turned on because they're very much in that like realm of, of working and, and maybe you can kind of keep that in mind as well. So, um, yeah, I would, I would center what you're trying to grap grapple with is the creative flame within the mind. And um, think to yourself, how do I get there? And if it requires me to go through hell, well, I, I'm going to be ready because the, the the goal is worth my suffering. But I'm not going to put myself through needless suffering. I'm not going to like load myself up in DMT for 10 weeks and destroy, turn my brain into like mush or something like this. Now from this time 
And I think really what we're seeing in, in the red book is the product of active imagination. And of course, if you're familiar with analytical psychology, you'll know that this is a main tool for dipping into that unconscious space, uh, that kind of dialoguing in an awakened state with unconscious elements. Um, but even then, uh, when people engage in active imagination, there can be that uh, the flooding from unconscious images that can come forward, even when you just sort of peek into the veil, you know, um, what comes up can be extremely overwhelming or just really strange and hard to comprehend. Um, so any thoughts on active imagination in general, you know, talking a little bit about taking psychedelics and how that stokes the creative flame, but there are ways for us to do it in this more grounded space. Dream work is a great option, but active imagination as well um, can allow us to kind of enter into the unconscious and you know figure out what's being presented there, what images, what figures. Yes, um, and that's a good question. And I, I actually, this is another thing where I'm going to say stuff that's heretical. Like this is this is probably the bit where you're like, all right, I'm done with this guy. But um, I think active imagination is oversold and a little bit overblown because I think it misleads people because people think that what they need to do is to sit down and open eye visual like they're on drugs, like see, you know, the anima. And they're like, it's happening. I'm having the spiritual experience and all this type of stuff. And I I'm certainly think that people have the capacity to do that. But I think that's um, it's asking a lot of yourself. And I, I don't think you should like in terms of getting results, you know, I think the thing that you should be focusing on is just switching on that visual imagination. And that can do a, a hell of a lot of work if you can apply that to your life. And so for me, um, I, I never really got too into having open eyed visuals. I never I tried it a little bit, but it was like it was hard to get anywhere with that. Whereas I could very easily switch on the sort of creative imagination through the dream reading. Now, it's not that I haven't experienced open eyed visuals before I took it like pretty strong psychedelics and I, I know what that looks like and that's extremely overwhelming to get all that stuff sorted out but I think um, maybe the simplest thing you could do when you're, you're trying to actively imagine is that in some sense you're trying to sit down and switch on the colorful part of your mind and I, I might, might talk about the hemispheres to, to kind of get into this a little bit more. And you could do that in very simple ways, ways that you already know. I, I hate to say it's kind of unromantic. Like I'd love to say that there's this cool technique and all that type of stuff. But it, like in practice, I just I, I don't see this being practical for people. People just get misled by the idea more than they, they get to the, the, the point, which is to switch on that flame. Like a writer switches on their colorful flame of imagination like i've not when a writer's writing out a fictive novel and they're really getting into their fantasies they're often there they're often as for as good as we could ever be they're in the unconscious this is why movies are littered with symbols you know because that's scripting and bringing out stories like that's basically doing what you're supposed to do it might not be as dramatic as you're seeing it or it's like completely possessing your mind and you're in a trance but just writing on a page and getting out those things it can take you really really far like, and I would recommend for most people to try stuff like that. Or if you want to really encourage the visual side of yourself, which will do a lot of the work. The left hemisphere is very linguistic, whereas the right hemisphere is very, very, uh, very, very visual. And I have a feeling the right hemisphere has got a, a is, is playing a part in this. That is um, quite important. And um, you could, you know, you could write a comic book or you could draw something like William Blake, if you want, like written and, and visual and all this type of stuff. And it really helps that side of the experience along. And in my experience, long term, I did dream reading like this. Like, for example, you write out a dream like a story. I would then just take the story I wrote, go to a coffee shop, sit down. Do I was doing English teaching at the time. And then after my class, I would sit down and write out and uh, you could say visualize out the dream. And that would reconnect me with that part of my mind that, that, that usually you just forget about when you go about your day. But I would bring the dream back up in a visual way, not just read through it in a visual way. And this would switch that part of myself on. And it, it turned into this thing where I would leave the coffee shop and it was like, it was like I was on you know, a pretty low dose of, 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 of mushrooms or something like that. Like my, my imagination inside my head, my imagination was like flickering very, very easily from switching that on. And I consider that the, the thing you're looking for. That's the thing that served me the most, you know, that's your sort of creative dancing spirit. And um, I would look, I, I would always suggest to people to, to focus on getting that. And Buddhists talk about ways to get this with their procedures for meditation, which leads to visualization. Like that's one way, that's one path. 
and if active imagination works for you go go right ahead and do it like i think that's a great idea i honestly think that people will get very far if they sit down and start taking stuff like their dreams or maybe those fantasy stories that they're saying to themselves and actually just start writing that stuff out like they're writing a little short story it's going to take you very very far because you're only trying to switch on that part of yourself to really get the effects and that's one of them um and then, like, as I said, like, if you're doing dream reading in that way, that you're not getting too caught up with, like, oh, does this symbol mean that, uh, how does this all relate? But you're actually thinking in terms of, uh, like, how can I just get myself into, it's like I'm trying to watch a movie, um, but this, the, the trick is that the movie's hidden within these words, and I have to, like, unpack it in my mind. And if you can start doing that, it connects you with that part of yourself. There's even a little bit of science to back that up, and um, Jordan Peterson talks about this a little bit. There's, like, weirdly, when you wake up in the morning, and you go about your day and you 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 basically switch on into beta waves and left hemisphere mode okay and um when you get some of the recall a dream there's this spot in the right hemisphere that switches on and the dream comes out of that and so some people propose that the dream itself might be happening in the right hemisphere and when you sit down and like like i did in the coffee shop resurrected that dream out of the like out of the words i brought the vision back out it was maybe me connecting myself with the right hemisphere in a way that i hadn't done in years and over a long period of time it may be just simple neurogenesis just wired that stuff together and made me have that flame switched on and so maybe that's something you can think about as well um so it's not necessarily a direct answer as i said it's a bit heretical but i in terms of being practical like that's my experience and i like i work with clients i've worked with like quite a lot of people in my program and i'm often talking about these themes you see the uber boyo project in general is about helping others light this flame yes Yes, most certainly, most certainly. I think there's two direct things. Like I'd like to get into proper storytelling. Like I'd like to get, and I look at movies and I understand movies as the purified version of that dreamy fantasy right hemisphere mind. Like they are it, you know? The words I'm using now are explainy words, are telly words, are teachy words. And this is very much a kind of flat ego, uh, ego left hemisphere way of presenting the, the world to myself and a movie uh, a myth a fairy tale and um, that always has more lasting impact than any simple kind of explaining stuff it's not that explaining stuff is useless but it's a different way of presenting things and i think that um if you can switch that on in yourself and and bring that to your your your, your life and um, there's lots of different ways you, you can you can um, invoke this and i'll talk about some very practical ones in a second but in a kind of big sphere i'm super interested in actually like trying myself as like a person trying to individuate as you could say an artist i'd love to get into a position where i could make films or make something where i can just get my fantasies i don't have to explain myself i just I, i'm not i will not explain myself i just present the story and people see what i see in my head because that's the greatest challenge for me i can talk to you all i want but i'll never be able to show you the kind of flickers of visions that are passing by my the in my mind's eye as i'm talking to you about this type of stuff and my, my goal is to get the position where i can let that out and um, but then in terms of like how does that become practical and what what can you do with people in order to introduce that into your life certainly i actually think this is a pretty big deal and if you can bring it into your life in a um simple down-to-earth way it can be absolutely life-changing in the simplest way possible your ability to articulate yourself if you, you you often hear people say can you think in um in pictures and present your ideas um in that type of way like i very much think in pictures and talk in that type of way and um, einstein was very much like this as well if i, I am to put myself in the same sentence and to give you a simple example when you're trying to teach um, abstract concepts and all this type of stuff you'll often notice that good teachers are really um really down to earth they're, they're they're really they're really good at jordan peterson's a great example they're really good at taking a big abstract concept and digesting it down into a simple antidote or story or visual that you can see very very clearly generally good communicators are visual communicators and it's just a a connection they have between their words and this sort of part of their mind and on the simplest level possible like one little life hack that you can do is try to snap those those two parts of yourself together and i think yeah one of my main 
main goals with people is when I talk to them is to try get that, that those two parts of themselves put together. And there's lots of connotations from this as well. And um, one last one I'll say as well is that uh, a lot of people come to me and they talk about discipline and willpower and, and getting stuff done and motivation and all this. Uh, I think that's a hugely important thing. You have to have a, an internal locus of control. But um, one of the things you'll learn eventually is that, and Arnold Schwarzenegger talks about this, that will is created by the vision. So when Schwarzenegger was sitting down in the gym and he had all these weights around him, and he's lifting them up and he's feeling those big biceps burn and he's, he's in his head and he's like, why am I doing this? You know, he's not going to persuade himself logically why he's lifting these weights, but he'd see this vision in his mind of like a beautiful physique, you know, the ideal bodybuilder. He'd see that vision and that vision would evoke out of his nervous system fire and energy and will and desire and because of the vision he would gain the ability to do those extra reps that would bring him closer to the vision it's not like he grit his teeth and be like willpower man discipline man it actually wasn't like that at all the inspiration pulled him forward and that is a very very deep and big idea very very deep and big truth and often something i'm trying to work on with people because this is often what a lot of people lack in a nihilistic age there's no big picture there's no vision that they're going towards and so um that is another consequence like you switch on this part of your mind it gives you these secret powers like this where you actually can see what you're doing with yourself why do you think athletes and the normies are so into like law of attraction and visualization i'm actually huge into that i'm like uh, the most hardcore scientist you can come across but i actually genuinely think that works. I think that is one of the smartest and most powerful things that people can do in the sort of normie age of like anti-religion and anti-spirituality. Like that's a pretty good habit that kind of broke in there. Maybe you could make it a bit more empowering than like, please universe is giving my stuff, but it gets people into their visual mind and gets them to imagine something better. And that's a pretty big step. That's a pretty big step forward. So, so yeah, I'll leave it at that because I'm saying a lot. All right, looks like we are about out of time. So thank you so much, Stefan, for joining us today. Um, do you wanna share any uh, closing thoughts or where people can find your work, uh, where they can go subscribe to you so they can follow you further? Oh yes, oh, yes. Mm -hmm. well, you can find me on Uber Oil. If you wanna go there, you can check out. I've got a big channel where I rant about all this stuff at excess length. And uh, yeah, I, I cover it all there. So thank you very much, everybody. It was a pleasure. And uh, sure, I guess I'll talk to you soon. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thank you for the questions. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Tanner. Best wishes to you. And, uh, yeah, the movies. Let's try to get the movie started. Cheers, cheers. Thanks, everyone. Um, so we've got a couple more events coming up this month. If you want to check it out, we'll be uh, linking up with Chris Gabriel from Meme Analysis and Matt Johnson from Spiritfire Tarot to do a deep dive into the High Priestess Tarot card. Uh, we'll have a workshop on the hero's journey Saturday, June 19th, and a couple of more uh, talks. Uh, Murray Stein joins us in July for a discussion on the Jungian revolution of our time. So head over to goldenshadow.org for more details. Thanks everyone for coming. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events or work one-on-one -on -one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.